0: Here's a few exciting scenes from tonight's episode of the Tom Gully Show. Well, we're lucky enough to talk to the fantastic, the bombastic, the force of nature. Now, let me get this pronunciation straight. You've got a very unique first name. It's it's spelled S A I L L E, and of course, I'm the fool that's been going. That Sail Branch looks like uh, he'd be great on stage. Now, how do you pronounce it?
1: You silly fool! You yes, no, it, it is Sail. That's exactly how it's pronounced. First song I learned to play, yes, I do. It was um, Suicidal Tendencies. I saw your mommy and your mommy's dead.
0: That come over from Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, uh, all yep. over Europe that are just, I mean, it, they blow you away. And they have oh, ab- yeah. absolutely no cultural indigenous, you know, surrounding them, rockabilly, you know, thing to draw from, but th- that music has spread.
1: The, the thing about the, the Swedish and the Netherlands and even Japan, uh, Japan has an amazing rockabilly culture, uh, unbelievable. And some of those guys in Japan that are playing rockabilly, they're singing it with the hiccup and they're doing it. And they got the hair and the pompadours and, well, they're in Japan, so they got really great gear. Mm, yeah, <laughs> those, guys, those guys are killing it. I mean, some of the best guitar playing I've ever seen on YouTube.
2: Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. It's time, America. Mr. and Mr. North of South American, all ships at sea, let's go to press. So sit back, buckle in, place your tray table in its upright lock position, and get ready for big-time radio, friends. It's time for...
0: Good evening it is wednesday september 10th 2014 episode 209 i'm tom gully and tonight on the tom gully show we've got a big two-parter tonight starting off first with a big barrel of awesome named sail branch every damn place i go in dallas texas people start talking about sail branch help it's not even a podcast if people don't start talking about Sail Branch. I even start talking about Sail Branch because he's a big, giant, wingtip wearing sleeveless t shirt or zoot suit sporting Texas red dirt psychabilly death metal tour de force along with his band, the Big Benders. We'll talk Japanese rockabilly, Texas football. Did I mention the Japanese rockabilly? and a whole lot more. Then, I'll go on a totally unscripted rambling rant about the ongoing shady dealings at the Jack Kirby Museum as they still won't return Greg Theakston's stuff. And I found out a whole lot more about the museum It's really more of a souvenir stand. But first, it's the incredible Sale Branch, tonight on The Tom Gully Show.
2: Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier!
0: Down goes Frasia! You're listening to The Tom Gully Show.
2: As children play in my front yard, life I shows is rough and hard. Well, nothing I do she says is right. I've been gone almost every night Rain falls down, promises drown Another night, restless town So I've broken many hearts before A teenage kid stands at my door Who are you, I ask once more You're my daddy, never seen before In the blood, there's no lying. You've been living, I've been dying. And as my heart falls to the floor, my soul is shaking to
0: the core. Well, we're lucky enough to talk to the fantastic, the bombastic, the force of nature. Now, let me get this pronunciation straight. You've got a very unique first name. It's spelled S-A-I-L-L-E. And, of course, I'm the fool that's been going, that Sale Branch looks like uh, he'd be great on stage. Now, how do you pronounce it?
1: You silly fool. You Yes, no, it, it is Sale. That's exactly how it's pronounced.
0: Okay. And, uh, and how did you get that name?
1: Uh, my mom gave it to me. It's, uh, it's another, I guess it's the Gaelic interpretation of Willow. Okay. So my last name being Branch, my mother had a sense of humor, obviously.
0: <laughs> so, is your mother Welsh, or is she just likes that, that Gaelic language?
1: Uh, well, actually, yes, we're we're uh, we're a mutt, we're a mixture, three parts um, German, Welsh, and Iroquois Indian.
0: Okay, well, my family also from a Welsh background, and uh, one side of the family is the hills, and the other side is the gullies. So I guess they met somewhere in the middle, and that's why I'm here. But uh, now you're a big you're a big guy, okay? Uh, I know the big bender is what you've been called in in some of the articles I've read about you, and in your backup group is the big benders. Did you play any sports or anything like that growing up?
1: Uh, I did play some sports here in Salina. Um, I played some football, uh, which Salina is notorious. Oh yeah, got all of this for football. Um, I was really a basketball player. Um, and as a younger kid, I was even a skateboarder. And the funny thing is, is at 36 years old, you still catch me occasionally on a skateboard showing younger kids, older tricks.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool. Now, what did you play in football? Because man, you, you've got the look of a guy that if I was to line up, uh, you know, uh, you know, across the line from you, I would think real good and hard about pulling a muscle or something and, and telling the coach, <laughs> sorry, don't want any of that. <laughs>
1: I started as an offensive-defensive tackle, and uh, as my knowledge of the game improved, uh, I guess by about my sophomore-junior year, uh, I was moving towards the defensive end position. And uh, after that point, I was really really starting to understand defensive end. But my real problem was I was really starting to like the ladies. So that kind of got in the way of my football career.
0: Well, uh, your football career may not last forever, but the ladies do. So uh, I know you're happily married, so that worked out. Uh, but you, let's get to the important stuff, the music, okay? What, what are your kind of musical roots? What's the first music that you heard and, and, and loved? Uh, I know that, well, I'll get to uh, the, the variety of music that you play in a second, but what's the first thing you sort of gravitated to?
1: Um, naturally in my house, I was raised by artists. So, um, really on Sundays at my house and pretty much every day, it would be the two Bobs. It was the two Bob network. And basically that could consist of Bob Dylan and Bob Marley. Um, and so that, that was what I was raised on a lot of Eddie Cochran and Chuck Berry and Rolling Stones, a lot of that. And I gravitated towards towards all of that the first record i or sorry cassette i bought with my own money was the uh chuck berry's greatest hits and i guess i was about eight
0: have you ever done a version of my ding-a-ling uh ever
1: (laughs) no well (laughs) no not one that's politically correct no
0: okay okay well uh I'm glad you you said that. That's one of the questions. I got a standard set of questions I ask everybody because I'm not that bright. And one of them is, what was the first thing you bought with your own money? And uh, you're the first one that said that, well, it's been honest enough to say cassette. So uh, that's awesome. Do you remember the first song you learned to play?
1: First song I learned to play. Yes, I do. It was um, Suicidal Tendencies." I Saw Your Mommy and Your Mommy's Dead. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you remember where you first performed that song?
1: Uh, in my friend's living room, yes. Okay. <laughs> and I don't think we ever took it outside of there.
0: Do you remember? Um, oh, go ahead, sorry.
1: No, I, my first performance was uh, with a friend of mine, Corey Gilmore, who's now a music teacher here in Salina. Um, he and I, we wrote back in '90 one or two I wrote a bunch of lyrics and he wrote the music because I couldn't play at that point I had a bass but I really just hadn't figured out how to play it yet and uh he put music to him and then he showed me the line on the bass I played it and we went and played uh three original songs and they were very kind of helmet uh you know that pre-grunge post-punk kind of rock and roll uh, heavy rock and uh, you know, pretty cool. Would have made us some money in the late 90s.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, let's get serious for a second. Wingtips. I have my desktop picture on my computer is a picture taken by the wonderful Melissa Arnold of your wingtips and your guitar. Uh, Awesome. I am a purveyor of the wingtip being from up north and heavily schooled in the Chicago blues. Uh, Can you tell me how those awesome wingtips came about?
1: Well, those wingtips, and uh, yes, I want to thank Melissa and Dale Arnold from Highway 82 Texas Red Photography for capturing that and everything that I do and and, and all the musicians around here. With that said, Melissa and I and and people of similar nature like you and I, the wingtips symbolize... Uh, kind of a cosmopolitan but now a neo retro vibe and some people don't understand it and then a lot of people just love it those particular shoes were my grandfather's golf shoes in the 50s Um, (laughs) I was searching for real good Italian made real leather wingtips and like I was looking and all I'd run into was some Doc Martens with big clunky heels on them and I was just like those just aren't sleek enough. And I went and opened up uh, a box from uh, my grandparents' estate, and I pulled out those golf shoes, and, I mean, they were immaculate. And they were handmade Italian golf shoes from the 50s. And uh, so I just went and got them resold for 25 bucks, and, man, I've been wearing them for four years straight now.
0: Well, and because they're golf shoes are probably indestructible too, which is an important thing, you know, for wingtips.
1: Absolutely,
0: I was wearing wingtips, God, for about twenty years, and I just stopped in the last five because I, I do a lot more walking uh, now than I used to. And wingtips are great, but man, if you got to walk a long distance, those babies are are, are hard. You don't find wingtips like yours, the two tones. You can sometimes find, and you're right, they've gone all Frankenstein on them uh, with the uh, soles and stuff. Man, those are those are a thing of beauty. Um, now your sound, okay. Um, the great thing about Texas music is nobody feels bound by a genre and and they just do their own thing. And your sound, I mean, you go from kind of a rolling cowboy thing sometimes, uh, a traditional country sometimes, to a song that we'll talk about in a minute, 29 Days, which it's not a blues song, but it's got, the only way I can describe it, it's got that power that a real Chicago blues power group has it's it's not a, a type of music it's just it's just powerful um can you right. talk about the variety of of music that you play
1: when i started playing music and writing songs in in the mid-90s and and dreamt of being able to do this and i never really knew if i'd be able to um well everything that i, I always loved musically was based in blues your led zeppelin's your bob dylan's um, so it's based off of that three chord kind of triad and those modes. Um, and in 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 over time, over the past oh, 15 years, past eleven years of really playing and learning my craft and and learning my instruments, um, as a bass player, I I began to initially wrote very melodically and kind of overplayed like a lot of young players do. And then as I became a better bass player, I started to find that less is always more and allowing vocals and instrumentation and mood to take over. And so it's more about the mood of a song for me. And uh, that energy and that vibe is how hard you pluck the string the space between the next note um obviously the tone from the speaker to the eardrum things like that and and these are things that that some people probably never think about and they may write music for 30 years but every every word and every syllable and every note that i strum i I try to think about how it affects the listener and, and if it if it expresses how i feel um Because good records to me always did that. They weren't always a click track, great, you know, and uh, a lot of times I think that the the new modern music, especially in the digital era, if it's real clean and click tracky, the music just almost becomes like white noise and you're just kind of swaying to a vocal pattern. And the Rolling Stones didn't do that. And a lot of the great Bob Dylan records didn't do that. Led Zeppelin's did not do that. And the Beatles didn't really do that. Um, especially, like, for example, a song from the Beatles that really captured me and kind of, in essence, the sounds that I go for and the the dynamic would be I Me Mine, where it starts out almost as like an R&B tune, and then it goes straight rockabilly, and then it drops back out. And, I mean, it's it's almost like a haunted ray charles feel and it goes back to the rockabilly and that that song is only two minutes long but it does that twice and it's unbelievable so it's just uh, i it's just layering textures to me
0: well i've i mean i've heard songs that you've done like uh the life i chose Mm -hmm. and uh in 29 days and and they both have an element of it's not an attack but it, it's not assault by any means but it is definitely uh sound forward i mean it is it is a uh, uh not sitting back like you mentioned the click track and the you know the the poppy hook and how do i get to the poppy hook again well i'm just going to fill it with some uh you know like you said audio wallpaper Um, (laughs) the, the, the 29 days song though, um, Melissa kept telling me, you gotta hear this guy. And I, I saw the pictures, which immediately I said, oh, this guy's, this guy's definitely got the front man thing down. There's no question about it. And then I saw the video. Um, the song itself is infectious. I I can't get it out of my head. I've listened to it five or six times today. And can can you talk? Well, I mean, I'm from a real heavy Chicago blues background and that thing is just oh it is a thing of beauty uh can you talk about how you came up with the song and then that amazing video shoot I mean I'm watching that thing and it is just like a a Whitman sampler visually of of great Texas musicians and I think uh, you even threw in those great folks that come over from Kent England uh, yeah. in that video, too, that I got to meet this weekend. Uh, can you talk Oh, Melissa about-
1: and Carrie are great. Love them.
0: Yeah, they are incredible. Uh, can you talk about the song and then doing that video?
1: Okay. Uh, the premise on that video, a good friend of mine, musician, who was in the video, Hank Van Hawkins, uh, knew the security guard. And uh, so Hank called me and Melissa, and we got together, and we were like, well, let's go do a photo shoot. And we went to see the security guard, and this is the old Dallas City jail where Lee Harvey Oswald was held. And uh, we go up there, and we meet the security guard, and, and he was a sweetheart. He let us in and gave us free reign of the place, and we took some photos. And, and we really looked around and walked through, and we were like, we should cut like a prison song here, cut a video. And Hank and I were supposed to cut it together, but I, not that I'm greedy, I just I write incessantly. And so, it, especially if you give me an assignment and the direction, it's really easy for me to pick a style and lyrically, I mean, that's, you know, it, it goes back to, yeah, lyrically I try to be provocative and profound and, and you know, I, 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 I try not to assault you, but I, I, I use like attention grabbers and cliches creatively and, uh, and illustrate lyrically is, is important. So with that song and, uh, you know, I, I've done my fair share of county jail time, believe you. Um, <laughs> it's uh, It was really easy, especially after going in and absorbing the vibe and the energy and, and, and the smell and the textures in there and, and just kind of just, you know, knowing that thousands and thousands of people had been in and out of there. And now it's, it's, it's kind of dead. And so, you know, I went home and, I wrote the song. I called Hank over, and I was like, well, let's see if you can write a verse to it. He's like, no, man, that song's done. So (laughs) we then called Mel and Dale, and uh, we kind of started storyboarding and and kind of the texture and, and everything we wanted. It took a long time for that to develop. Probably another seven months went by, and we finally put together the shoot. And uh, by that time, I had started just doing mass uh, Facebook contacts to all the Texas singer-songwriters that I knew, uh, you know, uh, Tom McElvain, Robbie White, Kevin Clark, uh, even the great, the last great DJ, Brett Dillon. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and getting all these guys involved. Um, Jared Medula was in there. Just, Just unbelievable talent that came. And, you know, they spent their Saturday on their dime. Nobody got paid. And they just wanted to be part of it. And uh, even Eric Beatty showed up, which which for Eric, it was really hard because when we finally got Eric upstairs for the shoot, he knew that he, he was going to jail for a long time. Eric's been in for probably a little over a year now, and he's probably got another year, year and a half to go. Um, and he's a really great songwriter and a great guy, and I, I can't wait till he gets back out here and starts working with us because we're really going to uh, you know honor him with open arms. So to me, it, all those, all those factors came in as far as that recording. And I had a rough scratch that we did at the studio, at Bentley Studios up in, in Denison, Texas. And it it was rough and raw. And we went back and fine tuned it. And, and the treatment, obviously, like you said, the Chicago blues thing, I, I wanted it to be straightforward. I wanted it to be rock and roll. And any Rolling Stones song or even a Nirvana song. Is really based in that element. It's, uh, you know, you take a blues format and you just crunch it up and change the tempo. And really, if you want to grab people's attention, repeat the chorus. It it, it has worked for, for hundreds of years. It will work forever. If you repeat the chorus, if it's kind of monotonous, there's no way that it cannot get stuck in people's heads. So it, it's kind of an anthem. And I did it, and it was it was an exercise, and it, everything came together beautifully. And and Melissa Arnold and and Dale Arnold really worked their butt off, and uh, you know with with only the reward of the artwork itself. But I think we all really enjoyed it, and are very proud of it. And um, you know, it's not something that can be done again. It, it was a one-time deal, and it was really a fluke that we even got in there.
0: Well, it, it it is something to be extremely proud of. You didn't just have a chorus in the song. You have a core, I mean, in the video. You got a, a, you know, you got a SWAT team of people that is absolutely belting that thing out. When I saw the video and the title of it, because I'm, again, not very bright, I thought, well, is this going to be a cover of that Johnny Paycheck song, 11 Months and 29 Days? Because if it is, it's the perfect setting for it. And then I was rewarded with this. Very pleasant punch to the solar plexus, man. It, it was just, it was just a really, really. It's a powerful song. It's a uh, uh, hats off to you. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you mentioned all the other Texas singer songwriters that you know. Can you talk about? As this is something I don't think exists anywhere else. Musicians are always, you know, have a, a certain degree of camaraderie, but I've right. never been around a type of music where the musicians share, collaborate and uh generally genuinely wish well on their competitors or their compatriots however you choose to look at it as exists in in the, the Texas music scene uh, can you talk about that just a little bit
1: uh, you, you hit the nail right on the head it's exactly like that um and and sometimes it's exactly like being in junior high school you know uh, yeah you you want you want little little Jimmy to do good. And, you know, you know, I love Jason Horn and Jason Horn loves me and we play shows and write songs together when we can, Um, you know, and, and all these guys. And yeah, we all want, we all want each other to succeed because we all understand one another. And like you said earlier in Texas music, there really shouldn't be any boundaries. You shouldn't bind your music with a label like red dirt or, you know, Texas Roadhouse, or it's—it's it's not. It's just music. It's just Texas music. We're just Texas people, being Texans, and you know, we we, we like to show off our belt buckle, or you know, whatever. Um, hike up our pants and, and do it our way, and, and we're not afraid to. Well, nobody's and, uh,
0: that, nobody, nobody's climbing on each other that that, or trying to climb over anybody. Sure, you want to succeed. You want the best for yourself. You'd be stupid not to. But it's not a situation where you're you're uh putting someone else at a disadvantage or, or trying to claw past them. It's just everybody go out there do your thing, and whatever comes your way, God bless you
1: well that I think that goes with just the Texas mentality of everything being so big and wide open and, and you know uh, like Jim Morrison from the doors uh he always i mean many times he he sang about the Texas radio and the big beat. Uh, the Texas music scene has really kind of always been this way. Um, there's always been a plethora of just amazing, raw talent from Texas. Uh, you know, uh, with Steve Winwood, uh, Billy Gibbons, uh, just, I mean, countless, countless musicians. And even musicians that aren't from Texas wish they were from Texas because, you know, and a lot of like Waylon Jennings will come here because they're just like, well, Arizona's great, but. There's something about writing music and 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 being a Texan that the it's rewarding. You can't do this anywhere else. You can't you can't share this like the way we do. And I mean, you can go see any one of us from a Monday through Sunday, seven days a week. You can come see one of these great musicians, Jeff Hopson, or or any of these up and comers. There's so many great musicians and, and writers and people people chasing their dream. And in an age where everyone seems or feels like a superstar because they got their Facebook page, they can create this image, well, it seems to me that the Texas singer-songwriters kind of strip that back and they just show you. They're like, okay, well, give me the microphone and my guitar, and this is what I am, and this is what I do. Well, and, and...
0: Now go ahead, man. I don't want to stop you.
1: And... Uh... That, that's just, that's what a Texas singer-songwriter is. I mean, it just laying it on the line and and, and telling your story. Because everyone has a story. Everyone's been through, through hard times. I mean, there's a lot of guys that, guys and girls, that, you know, were overseas fighting, you know, for our freedom. There are guys that were, you know, come from broken homes. There are guys that, you know, they were raised by bankers and lawyers or they were bankers and lawyers. And you know what? They just found out that, that's just not what they want to do. They want to, they want to tell the story and sing and and feel this. And, and there's something about being on a stage in front of a crowd of Texans drinking beer and eating good food and having a good time that I, money money just doesn't compare at all in any way, shape, or form.
0: Well, I'm living proof, man. I mean, I I'm one of those people. I wasn't born here, but I got here as quick as I could, and I ain't leaving. I mean, it it is uh, something that if you if you have to describe it to somebody, they just don't get it because it's something. That's
1: it, right. Welcome it, home, brother. Welcome home.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you cross the state line, and it is a whole different attitude. It is an attitude of. You know, you tell somebody, hey, I want to invent the next, you know, widget. And, you know, a lot of other places, oh, you can't do that. Only a big company. Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that in Texas. It's like, well, by God, go out and do it. You know, yeah. um, you know, it's it's really and that stems into the next thing that I find is is so totally unique and precious about this music scene. And that is the people that support this music and the innate relationship that exists between the performers and the people that follow it. If you listen to KHYI on a Friday night, I would say half the songs they play are about going out and listening to some live music on a Friday night, you know? Um, can you talk about the people that, that come out to your shows and and follow your music?
1: You know, these, these Texans, these North Texans and these Texans, they, they bust their ass all week. Some of them work for some other, somebody else. Some of them run their own company. Some of them drive trucks, rigs, or some of them own 25 companies or, and are liquid. And you know what? Those guys, those guys that make, you know, $2 million by falling out of bed and selling you some dirt off their land, and this happens, those guys will show up in sandals and cut off shorts and they'll buy you a beer and talk to you. And 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 Stephen Cooper from Blacktop Gypsy and I were talking last night, and uh, you know he he said when Blacktop was kind of doing the promotion and trying to find investors for uh, their last record, people just came up and you know they're like, no, I don't want to be an investor. Here, here's two thousand dollars. Just go make your great record. And that is is, is what these people do. They come out and they'll come and see you and and they'll 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 buy food and buy drinks and take care of the venue and they'll love and support you even if you even if you totally screw up which believe me publicly I have I sometimes don't have a filter and I've done some things that have kind of got me in trouble and you know what for the most part everyone's just you know everybody's like okay calm down buddy all right we'll give you some time work through it and You know what? They've been here for me, nonstop, no matter what, and, and that's that's just the nature of people and, and and things here.
0: Well, I I gotta tell you, um, the uh, Johnny Rotten, one of my heroes, said oh, yeah. there should be no difference between the people on stage and the people watching the performance, and you know, uh, the very first time I played in Texas was with Jay Johnson's band. And I mean, you were family instantaneously. Next time you showed up at a show, even people that weren't at the first one knew who you knew who you were, welcomed you without exception, uh, without condition. Absolutely. You're you're in. And I've never seen a kind of music that's so prevalent here. Okay. It's, it's, It's almost like uh, if you go to, let's just pick a town, Kansas City, and you turn on the country radio, okay? You hear Kenny Chesney, and you hear Brooks and Dunn. Brooks and Dunn aren't going to talk to you after the show is over. They're they're busy, whatever. They're big stars. Okay, fine. But here, the people you listen to on the radio every single day. Yes, I am. Are you there?
1: No, I'm cutting
0: out. Okay. Um, Can you hear me now?
1: I can hear
0: you now. Okay. Um, the people that you listen to on the radio, if you listen to KHYI or some of the other stations across the state, they are are going to talk to you in between the set. Not only are going to talk to you, they're going to sit down with you. They're going to share some brisket with you. That This really f- prevalent form of music, which is just as invasive or prevalent as, say, your your top 40 station or your country station anywhere else, the artists that you hear on the radio are going to sit down, talk with you about the music, about what you did that day. They're friends, they're, they're, uh, they're family. It's just, it's a family experience. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, man. We, we, you know, we'll tell you how to make chili and gumbo, Uh, you know, uh, just people, people. And I, you know, that's probably one of the most genius things, and I don't think a lot of people get that from Mr. Johnny Lydon or Johnny Rotten, who's actually a, one of my heroes as well. Um, I, it's funny that that guy would say something that profound um, because he's really crass, but he's really real. He always was. Um, that that really does embody how... how how we are as musicians and, and just people here. Cause I mean, you can go up to Jackson Eli and Jackson Eli will talk to you about truck driving or horse shit or whatever. Um, it, it's just kind of that vibe and, and, and that camaraderie. Uh, and we, we are accessible because we're no, we're no different and we're no better than anyone else. We're just people and we're just telling our story the way we know how.
0: Well, uh, in that vein, I am going to meet you on October the seventh. I understand that you are playing uh, a benefit for Ronnie Spears' aunt at the Cowboy Club in Van Alston uh, on that day, um, and that's a, a another great thing about about the Texas music scene. That's a lineup of just you know people that you'd be happy and pleased to hear play. Uh, by themselves, and there's what five, six really, really major Texas music artists getting together to help somebody out.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, you know, I'm sure like publicly, especially like say if you're from California or New York and you see that, oh, there's a benefit, another benefit concert in Texas. Somebody's kids are sick, or, well, no, it's just, it, we're family. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, we'll come play for you. I hope, let's raise some money for your family. Let's, you know, and, and I, I can't say this enough, uh, you know. um You know, Jesse Sims and Brian Bentley, the record label that I was with, um unfortunately, even though the record part of it didn't work out as well as we both hoped, as families, they really helped me when I was in a tight spot. Hey, you know what? I would do the same for them if the if, if shoe were on the other foot. And and that's that's just, that's just you know, the nature of it all. Sometimes if, we fight like brothers, but we're brothers. Yeah. Just, yeah.
0: Well, if the wingtip's on the other foot, they're walking in style.
1: <laughs> that's right. They probably can't fit it anyway. That is a 14-B.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> that's a wide shoe. Now... Um, uh, well, we won't get into shoe sizes and other things, but if um, the, the tragedy befalls the world and uh, Sail Branch is is traveling to Mallorca to play a, a big concert there and his plane goes down and crashes on a desert island, what music do you want to have with you on that desert island?
1: Uh, I want every rockabilly record ever cut. I need uh, I need all the Rolling Stones records. I need uh, Sex Pistols. Uh, uh, never mind the Bullocks. I need the entire Cramps collection and Bratwurst. And I think I'm good.
0: Okay, now rockabilly. <laughs> the rockabilly scene. Uh, who are your f- her favorite rockabilly groups? I'm a huge fan of Southern Culture on the Skids. Oh, man. Uh, of course, the Reverend, Horton Heat, gets in, in that group a little bit uh, with some of the stuff oh, he yeah. does. What what's what are your favorite rockabilly groups?
1: You know, it, it, it's going to be the same. I'll say yeah, Southern Culture on the Skids, Reverend Horton Heat. Um, honestly, uh, Stray Cats, a, duh. Um, Lee Rocker, amazing. Um, but... The Hillbilly Hellcats from Colorado, mm-hmm. Chuck, is an amazing guitar player. Um, and I've been trying like hell to find two venues that will pay them 1500 bucks a night, two nights in a row, to get those guys to come down here and play two shows with me. I, I, if I had three grand, I would just pay them three grand so I could put, put on two great shows of rockabilly. Um, unfortunately, I don't have that capability but uh, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work that out real soon and maybe try and book it with The Rev because uh, we just played with The Rev a few weeks back at Shiner Sunday. And uh, I really want to get Chuck down here. Uh, they, were, they had a really strong push in the late 90s, early 2000 era. And uh, I, I really, honestly, I don't think there's a lot of guys that can really top Chuck as far as, as rockabilly lyrics Um, and and style, and also mixing Psychobilly and Rockabilly very, very creatively. A lot of Psychobilly gets way too metal or dark. Uh, They're really tasteful.
0: Yeah, it's uh, an art form that uh, there's a thing every year called Viva Las Vegas. It happens in March, sometimes early April. And it is a, a just a giant gathering of rockabilly groups, and uh, you know the paladins are there, Big Sandy's there, the bands we mentioned uh, are often there. It's basically that a car show, a burlesque show, and a tattoo show, all mixed into about a three day event in the old part of Las Vegas. And uh, there are bands that come over from Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, uh, all yep. over Europe that are just. I mean, it, they blow you away and they have oh, yeah. ab- absolutely no cultural indigenous, you know, surrounding them rockabilly, you know, thing to draw from. But th- that music has spread and it's such a inherent part of rock and roll's early beginnings. Do you think your rock and roll background and your roots kind of listening to that music is what has drawn you to it and makes you so good at it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and man, you said the Paladins. Kudos, big kudos on that one. Um, wow. Uh, and yeah, the, the thing about the, the Swedish and the Netherlands and even Japan, uh, Japan has an amazing rockabilly culture, uh, unbelievable. And some of those guys in Japan that are playing rockabilly, they're singing it with the hiccup and they're doing it and they got the hair and the pompadours and well, they're in Japan. So they got really great gear. Mm, yeah. and those <laughs> guys, Those guys are killing it. I mean, some of the best guitar playing I've ever seen on YouTube. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, the rockabilly scene in, in Denmark and in, in Norway and in Sweden, in, in all those areas, that's where, that's where all the real psychabilly is coming from. And so if there's a psychabilly scene, that means there's probably 20, 30, 40, 50 bands of just pure great neo-rockabilly or rockabilly being played as well.
0: Well, the, uh, the first Kill Bill movie. That little mm-hmm. Japanese group that's playing in there. Quentin T- Tarantino heard them like at the airport. Somebody was playing them. They're, they're a band called the Five Six Seven Eights, which I think is just a coo- <laughs> they're just a cool name for for that type of group. And if you hadn't seen them playing it. You wouldn't necessarily know they were Japanese. I mean, you, you, it was just such a great, great, great sound. Um, can't get enough of that stuff. But uh, can you talk about your band, uh, the band you put together? Because, you know, like, like the, you, your band it reminds me a bit of the Paladins. You know, it's, it's not heavily instrumented in terms of not, you don't have nine guys up there. Uh, but you get a power and a sound out of the band that you do have that is just, you know, it, it takes over
1: right uh i've always been fortunate to surround myself with really great musicians not technically or educated musicians but just guys that well the endless pursuit of tone uh tubes good speakers good gear um attack technique and and really just learning it i mean i shuffle through musicians and i can put nine people on a stage and i will here and there but that's only to do, like, a creepy Tom T. Hall orchestral song, and then we'll strip it back to three and, and just go all the way out rock and roll and almost cyclically. Um, I, I, I've had uh, Chris Wilkinson on bass and Caleb Holloway on guitar for a while, um, two great guys, uh, phenomenal musicians, and really passionate. Those guys took every song. I had them a list of 60 songs. And Chris Wilkinson on the bass, he, I think he learned him in about, well, two weeks. Um, unbelievable. Um, right now I'm currently using, uh, a band formerly known as the Rodeo Clown Dropouts, uh, Jimmy Duvall and Cody Duvall. It's a father and son rhythm section. And I mean, it is the epitome of the ultimate rockabilly, uh, uh, you know, rhythm section. Those guys, those guys are picking it up and, I really get that, that great vintage feel. And I don't even have to tell them what the song is. They, they know it as it's coming out of the speaker. I don't even understand it, honestly. So I was very fortunate in that aspect. And uh, we got another old school professor. He's a, his name's Dan Hodan. And he uh, plays mandolin, dobro, guitar, piano. He plays anything. And, uh, he's a guitar instructor at a university here in, in, in Dallas. And, uh, he's just one of those old school cats and he hears it before it even hits the speaker. I don't, I, I don't, I, just, I don't know how these guys do that. Um, but I'd tell you what, I, I'm taking notes and I'm learning cause I would like to be able to know the note before it comes out of the speaker too.
0: <laughs> do you ever envision yourself playing with like a tower of power horn section behind you?
1: Always. I always want a horn section. I, I'm even trying to work one or two in here and there. Um, You know, my friend Corey Gilmore that that I talked about earlier that, you know, my first writing is a high school friend of mine. Um, He's now the instructor here, but he also on the side has a Tower of Power tribute band uh, called Urban Renewal. And I've gone and seen them, and, I mean, they play Tower of Power, note for note. They have the full horn section. And, yes, that is something that I think some of my music really, and as my writing Develops, I think there's going to be room for that because I do like that Marty Robbins style gunslinger western music and, and that western swing and I think as I get older I'll write more in that vein.
0: Well, on that note, what what's in the oven? What what's coming up next for for you and the guys or or you know your recording or producing or any of the other nine things that you do?
1: All of the above. Building a, building a real website, uh, developing the fan base. I am cutting – I've gone away from studios because I just – I don't need an engineer or a producer to tell me how to make my simple music sound cool. Um, it, it's a matter of tone and input levels. It's really not rocket science. A lot of guys are trying to make this rocket science, and I'm sorry, you can't cut a good record in a basement. I mean, Prime is Selling the Seas of Cheese was cut in a basement. Um Blood Sugar Sex, Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers was cut in the concrete house in California. It can be done. You don't have to be in a controlled environment. You just have to have good miking. You have to take your time and cut it. And with that said, uh, I've got one of my old uh, intern drummers, uh, John Breedlove, and I are going to do one EP starting recording this week. And then I'm going to another studio, RegoGo Records here in Dallas. We're going to cut an EP there. Uh, and then I've got two more kind of in the works, one out in Austin, and we'll probably cut the straight rockabilly record out there. Um, and he's got a home studio and it's four musicians, by musicians. And, uh, it, you know, he's got bunks and it, it's kind of more of the family thing. And we're, I'm going to cut four EPs this year and we're going to do them all in-house, all do it yourself because I've been waiting for a year and a half, two years to get records done in studios and it either hasn't really been to my liking or they haven't liked my approach or just been a conflict of interest on both ends. So it's it's easier to put out records by yourself. I, I did two records with my previous band, Dragna. And uh, me and Bart Thrasher produced the first one. It's called uh, Another Texas Highway Riot. It's really raunchy and, and almost sonically awful, but it's beautiful because it's that way. It was a debut record. It was supposed to be gritty and greasy and, and awful, and it was kind of punk and country and blues rock all thrown together. Uh, the second one was recorded by a, a guy that works for Cakewalk, uh, Mike Trujillo, who uh, is a great guitar player and producer, uh, and we did that record for five grand with duplication, copies, mastering, and, you know, on the shelves and online. Uh, and I know a lot of people that are spending $10,000, $20,000 for a record that they're not proud of. I don't understand it. I couldn't do it. Um, I could probably cut a great record for $800 in my house and have units to sell.
0: Well, it's that great scene in the Buddy Holly movie where, you know, he's sitting there across from the record producer. He's got a number 1 hit record and he's like, "Look, if if a producer knew how to do all this crap, you you'd be talking to him, not me." I'm um, got right. a simple setup. It's three guys. We we, you know, we know how to overdub. We know a little bit of the technology. Right now, the technology is such that if you've got GarageBand on a Mac, it comes for free. And you know how to hook up a mic, and you don't overmodulate. You can produce something yourself. Hell, Springsteen's Nebraska album was done at home on his eight-track by himself as a demo, and he said, "This is good enough. I'm, I'm putting it out." And up, oh, we're breaking up again, aren't we?
1: Oh, I shouldn't breathe. I moved. No, a- oh. pay direct due north.
0: that's okay it was it was when I'm talking so people people appreciate that on the show and they don't have to listen to me but um you know what talk about the EP because I think the EP is the way of the future instead of waiting a year for somebody's next album you wait three months four months five months and boom there's another couple songs out that are more focused that are more tight that are more the way that the artist wanted them to be
1: uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and Brett Dillon told me this about six months ago. He's like, don't bring me a full, the full length. He said, bring me an EP. That's what everyone's doing. And it's easier. I mean, for one, you can theme it. You can, uh, I was talking about, uh, a band, uh, called Switchfoot, which was, a you know, um, a, a modern progressive hardcore band. Oh yeah. But one thing that the lead singer from that band did, it, uh, on his solos, is he did, uh, four EPs in a year and it was autumn, summer, winter, fall, you know, and he he did, and and they all had the theme and they all had the vibe and and the images were the same. Well, I have about a hundred songs ready to cut. So what I've done is I've narrowed them down to one is the big bender EP, which is is something I've been trying to work on. And, and that's a series of songs that kind of navigate around the, all the drinking and drugging and, and stuff. And, And the things that happened before and when you first start playing music and you get spun, and it it happens. And and especially for for guys like me that, you know, a lot of us are addicts and kind of crazy. Um, And, you know, if we live long enough, we make it past 27 or 32, then, uh, you know, you get to tell the story. And uh, so what I've done, the first EP is the Big Bender EP, The second EP is going to be uh, more of the Texas country, just straight up, you know, upright bass, mandolins, slide guitar, my acoustic, a little bit of lead. It's just going to be real, you know, kind of Chris Knight, you know, Mm -hmm. but uh, take Chris Knight, and Tom T. Hall and make it really creepy. And that'd be kind of how that's going to feel. And, uh, I'm going to do those as a series, um, it's gonna be a, a root bound and whether it be more of the roots, it'll be the R O T bound, volume one, two, three, or four. And if it's gonna be like the rockabilly one, it'll be root bound, which will be spelled, you know, like a highway, like Route sixty six, uh root bound. And I'm gonna of kinda of those you know, I'm kinda of stealing from Johnny Cash, which it's it's never had to steal from Johnny Cash because that guy was a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um And so I'm going to do those as as kind of like highway volumes, you know, kind of like Johnny did. And as many of those as I can cut and put out in the next 10, 15 years, I'll do it. And, you know, I write probably anywhere from three to eight songs a month, uh, lyric and music. And then I have one more EP, which will be the final one, which will be the studio I'm taking in. And it's going to be real in-depth. It's going to be more of a tale and uh, it, it's 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 a gunslinger's tale, and and you know the, it'll bleed through with with like tumbleweeds and wind and and jangly piano saloon parts, and and I'm gonna get really creative and create it like a haunted, evil Marty Robbins kind of vibe.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you guys and, are uh, kind of gunslingers. I mean, you go from town to town, uh, you either scare everybody or take all the women. And then you move on to the yeah, next. Yeah. You move on to the next town. You know, I mean, uh, you really, uh, and you, you especially seem to have a persona on stage that you know befits a, a gunslinger. You mentioned you're a relatively pro- prolific songwriter. What's your What's your process, what's your pos- if indeed you have one? I think it's probably a stupid thing even to say, but but how do the songs come to you?
1: Uh, some of them, some of them require work. Uh, I used to write lyrics first. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore as my as my musicianship has improved. Um, Mark David Manders gave me a capo about a year and a half ago, and that changed my life. I was like, wow, I can play all my standard, you know, because I'm, you know, I mean, I can play guitar as good as I can. It's really an illusion. It's smoke and mirrors. I just, I have style. It's all about style. It, it goes back to that skateboard element. But uh, as far as that goes, the writing is, is uh, I just try to be provocative lyrically and I, I don't know where the music comes from. I really don't. And and I have a lot of other musicians, whenever I set in with them or they set in with me and they're like, your arrangements are just really unique. And the thing about music is it, it's really all been done before. It's just your approach and how you put things together. And I guess because I'm self-taught that I'm just a, uh, I don't know, I I, I guess I it, it is a little more original and unique and and maybe a little more snappy, or it kind of catches people off guard because it's not what you would think. I'm sure when I walk on stage that people are like, oh, gosh, this heavy metal guy, it's about to, what's he going to do? He's going to play heavy metal in a honky-tonk bar, and then I play honky-tonk music, and they're like, or old folk music, and they're like, what is going on?
0: Yeah, um, or, or the other side of the coin, when the guys from 1100 Springs go up on stage, you know, it's like the last thing they think is, is I'm going to hear, well, they even talk about one of their songs, you know, we play country. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, you never know what you're going to get in a, in a Texas music venue. Right. Now, uh,
1: I love, I love those guys. They're phenomenal.
0: Aren't they? And and then you got a guy like Dale Watson, who is just, I mean, I can't even say enough good things about that guy. Uh, another guy you'd look at and, and you might think, oh, did, did, uh, jerry lee lewis have uh you know a second cousin that's gonna play for me tonight and it's just it's just as is down home country and and uh, traditional but he even puts his spin on it you know and um it's it's a fabulous thing what's the best way for people to follow you what's what's the best way for them to keep track of what you're doing and to get more involved with your music and to be there when the next thing happens
1: uh stay tuned um, <laughs> um... Man, honestly, the only thing I really have going for me right now, because, I mean, I am ADD, as all can be. Um, I am trying to pull reins on, on the, the social media network and get that all worked out. And, I mean, it's all I can do to keep the musicians and the songs written and, and, you know, keep, write these great ideas down and hone them. Um, my Facebook page, you know, Sale Branch, um, booking is Chess Punch Records. Chest punch records, all one word at gmail.com. You can book any one of my acts or me solo and I'll come play at your house for a hundred bucks. No big deal. Um, you just hit me up there, shoot me an email. Uh, I'm pretty accessible. I, I, my phone number is listed on on my uh, Facebook page and uh, you can call me directly. Um, you'll always deal with me, no booking agent, no nada like that. I, I, I do it myself.
0: Well, yeah, I can't, maybe that's
1: why a little chaotic.
0: Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with a little chaos. Now is chest punch your idea? Because I, I can't think of anything more appropriate uh, th- <laughs> than that name.
1: <laughs> well, that's, um, the old Dan Dragna, when we released our records, we were like, well, we're, we're never going to have a record label. So, you know, nobody's going to pick us up. We we do it because we're DIY and, and we're going to be that way till we die. And, uh, that was just the name we came up with, and, and then I realized, wow, in, in this day and age, all you have to do is have an email address and a fax line, and guess what? I have a record label. You know, and, uh, it's not, it's not to, you know, make money off other people's music. It's basically just to release, release my music and have a one solid place to contact me for, for any one of the bands. If somebody wants the old Dragna stuff, if you want a t-shirt and, and a CD or both CDs, you know what? Call me, and I'll probably drive it to your house, and I'll bring I'll bring you two CDs and a T-shirt for fifteen bucks.
0: Five more bucks and a six pack of Shiner.
1: That's yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs>
0: well, um, Sal, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been to talk to you. I can't tell you how much I'm excited to be there on the seventh to. Uh, meet you and, and hear you play live because I've seen all the YouTube videos and man, uh, if, if you got any time at all, go to YouTube, type in cell branch, S A I L L E branch, you know, like you would normally spell it and uh, check out. Yeah. Check out this music because it, it's really, it's I, I, the word I, I can only keep coming back to is powerful. It is a powerful sound. And, uh, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be on the show.
1: Oh, man, it's an honor. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Hi, I'm Tom Gully, host of The Tom Gully Show, and I'm here to talk to you about the most amazing phenomenon Uh, you see. Although thousands download each episode of The Tom Gully Show, not that many actually like our show on Facebook. So, we'd like to try and do something to get more likes and, uh... Hey, boss, never fear. I got this one solved, you know? Oh, Vinny. Great. Uh, folks, this is Vinny. He does things for the show from time to time, uh, most of which we can't talk about. Uh, Vinny, what's your solution? Okay, what we do is... We get a cute little kitty cat. Alright? Then... If we don't get enough likes within about 5 minutes, I twist its little head until it pops. Oh, oh, oh good good Christ. No. We're not doing something like that. What, what makes you what makes you think something like that would even work? Well, it works when you use a kid instead of a kitty cat. Folks, We'd appreciate it if you'd go and like the Tom Gully Show on Facebook. 99 days in the county jail oh yeah maybe that's what they ought to be getting over at the kirby museum where they still have not returned one of the most i don't know recognized comic book figures possessions but we'll get to that in a second i gotta explain something first you know uh, in the old days, when I was on a regular broadcast station all the time, every day, four hours a day, you just you extemporaneously talk on the radio about a subject. Now, you might have notes or something or certainly backup materials. But uh, I don't do that anymore quite as much except during the interviews. And uh, those, of course, have another person to talk to. So this is a little different from what I normally do on the podcast. Anyway, Um and it's fun. I enjoy it. So hopefully you will, too. Uh, the Kirby Museum. Let's go back to the very beginning on this, all right? Everybody knows who Stanley is. You've, you've watched him probably out front of the Marvel franchise most of your life. And Stan's a gregarious guy with a gift of gab and sort of a dynamic personality. And uh, that translated into the comics. And uh, what you might not know, unless you're a comic book person, is that the graphic sort of uh, emphasis on the early Marvel characters was all done by one guy. And that that guy's name, he's revered amongst comic book aficionados, is Jack Kirby. Okay, now so when you go see the Avengers, when you go see uh, Iron Man, when you go see Thor, when you go see the Hulk, when you go see Spider-Man, Jack Kirby's the guy who came up with the poses and the way they dynamically interacted with each other on, on those just... Amazing comics of his. They very much set the trend uh, for the way comics are today, and they very much were the foundation of why Marvel. Uh, established itself as such an attractive alternative to DC. DC being a little more conservative, a little more staid. The characters a little more goody-two-shoes, and Marvel's characters were hip. They spoke like you know uh, people spoke, and they had real problems, and they they had uh, storylines that were maybe a little bit more believable. And uh, if you can you know believe in a guy that got bit by a spider, and that. well you know that the, the characters' personal, emotional, sort of interpersonal. It was a lot more believable. So Jack Kirby is obviously the gold standard, if you will, uh, for early comic book artists of that era. There's older ones like uh, Lou Fine, who Greg Theakston actually turned me on to. Greg Theakston is the guy who's had his stuff ripped off. And it was Jack Kirby material. Okay, now, Greg's not just a guy named Joe. He was a Jack Kirby apprentice, biographer, collaborator. Uh, I know that he has uh, published, I think, more Kirby editions uh, biographically than anyone. Uh, and so Greg was working hand-in-hand with Jack Kirby, a legend. Not over, you know, I mean, hand-in-hand, meaning literally I'm going to hand you this, you're going to hand me that. And Greg actually inked uh, many of the Jack Kirby items that that were used in in some of these editions. and what inking is, and this is going to be important to the story in just a second. Uh, an artist like Jack Kirby would create something called a pencil. okay He would take a pencil and sketch the way he wanted the characters to look and pose in in a sketch, a true sketch. Um, and it would be rough yet close enough that you could tighten it very easily with, ink by going over it with, you know, a a sheet of paper over the pencil. Okay. So the pencil is the original master, but you wouldn't necessarily want to damage that original master. So you'd make a copy of it, a Xerox. And those are called sort of in the trade pencil Xeroxes or pencil photocopies. Okay. And it may sound like, well, what's that worth? It's not worth anything. Well, that's the most original first generation copy of that pencil and the pencil of course is the sort of the origin of it all right um and so that copy that first generation copy black and white copy of that pencil is is extremely valuable i mean jack kirby's hands may have touched it etc 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 um greg had been gifted about 3500 of these by jack and roz roz being his wife kirby and there was a little contention, I guess, through the years. How did you get these? Do you really own them? Greg has verified this on numerous occasions. And certainly the Jack Kirby Museum doesn't dispute that they were his possession. Well, that's where things start to get sticky, okay? Because there's a guy by the name of Rand Hoppy that's a trustee for the Kirby Museum. And he came over to Greg's home, Greg's home, and scanned these pencil xeroxes for use in his museum the scans all right and that'll become important in a second as well uh as greg was about to move he realized this guy's not going to be able to scan all these and so he let him have them for scanning and said this is a loan now greg at the same time flat out gave gave the kirby museum eight boxes of other valuable, valuable Kirby artwork. He said, here, take these, have them. I am giving them to you as a donation, okay? Eight boxes of stuff, two and a half boxes of pencil Xeroxes he wants back after they're scanned. Seems reasonable to me. And by the way, why would he allow this guy into his home scanning these if he did not expect to keep them or get them back? No one's been able to answer that question satisfactorily to me. Uh, It does not pass the smell test that he's going to let this guy in his house. I guess over a period of three years on a monthly basis for hours and hours on each time he'd show up. Okay. Fast forward to just, I don't know, two months ago or so. And Greg asks for them back. And he calls Rand Hoppy and Rand Hoppy says, I'll look into it. I think they're in storage. I'll have to check. And he never hears from the guy again, except a press release from the museum that is so convoluted, I'm not going to even try and replicate it. If you want to go to kirbymuseum.org, first of all, try not to laugh. Yes, that is an actual museum's website. I know it looks like a blog uh, for a junior high basketball team in 2007. But it's not. It's an actual museum's website. I know it just looks like they're trying to sell t-shirts and posters there. Uh, And there are long-winded talks about how the museum came to pass. And patting themselves on the back. And what they're going to do in the future that's not done. And we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. But on that website is a press release. Where they basically make Greg out to be either a liar or confused or something else. Now this web this uh, press release clearly points out that they never ever at any point gave him a master list and an inventory of all the things he donated. They never ever had him sign any agreement that said this I'm donating, this you're loaned, and you do that when you take possession by the way. I've heard that from every museum professional I've talked to they all to a man and woman said. You can't really take possession of any donation or loan until you have accounted for every single item with an inventory number denoting exactly what that item is. You have to aggregate those and you have to have the donor or lender sign off on it before taking possession it is they're just like no, it's 101. it's not it's not an ethical thing you can do. It's not the way museums practice. And the reason for that, each of the seven people I talked to said is for instances just like this one. I might add that all these museum professionals were aghast and that's the best word for it aghast that a man that had donated eight boxes worth of very rare, valuable artwork and had allowed the museum five years to scan the original 3,500 pencil Xeroxes is being treated in this fashion. One of the, the people just said, Hey, do you really think I can go out and ask for other donations if I had done something like this? It's simply... In it's, it's in, uh, the word ingratitude and ungrateful just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Okay, so that's the controversy. Greg says I loaned these two and a half boxes. You you know I gave you eight others just to have, and they say no, it's all ours. Thanks, ours. Apparently, another trustee, John Morrow, was loaned six or seven hundred of these pencil Xeroxes for his publications, his personal publications and has not had them returned. So there's a pattern here. Okay. And that's the issue of the theft. And just talking about the issue of the theft, I don't believe the museum's story, not for one second. There's no reason in the world. They can't high res scan those items. It's a digital museum. There's no brick and mortar. Nobody's going to walk in and see these pencil Xeroxes. And to the naked eye, they could never hope to tell the difference uh, between a scan of the original pencil Xeroxes and those items. Uh, The scans allow the museum or anyone else to actually go in, tighten up those pencil Xeroxes if they wish, um, do whatever they want to the resolution, get into their computer, color them, do whatever they want. Uh, It just makes no sense that they would keep these items until you start looking into these people's backgrounds none of them have any museum experience whatsoever zip zero zilts nullen, the empty set there isn't any but they have a huge amount of experience in collecting things and if you look at their site And if you look at their blog postings, and if you look at their Facebook page, it's all about give us your stuff. Let us scan your stuff. And in a chilling, chilling, chilling post, and if you've got so much Kirby art that you can't bring it to us, we'll come to you. (sighs) Well, that's happened before, hasn't it? beware because they came to another guy's house and they got their hands on his stuff and he hasn't seen it since okay but let's go to the aspect of these people being a museum because boy that press release was as pompous as it could be second only to confusing it was pompous I mean, it's like on one hand, we're really grateful that he gave us all this stuff and screw you. And with that in mind, okay, if you're a museum, let's just take a look at your quote unquote museum. Now, if you go to their, I call it a blog page. I'm sorry. It's not a website. It's a blog page. Kirbymuseum.org. Start just clicking through the postings. Just click through them. Just zip, zip, zap. And see how many are selling merchandise or promoting a con appearance where they sell merchandise. And by the way, there's a lot of people online talking about the fact that they think that this museum is nothing more than con vacations and t-shirt sales for these trustees. And looking at what's online, it is difficult to argue with that uh, conjecture. It really is. If you look at the last 10 posts they've had, All 10 are selling something. Nine of them are for cons. Is that a museum? Because that's like a glorified, you know, souvenir shop is what that is. I'm real sorry. Okay. They've had this material now for eight years, some of it. And they haven't managed to create an interrelational database, you know, they could have a This Day in Kirby history with a brand new specific thing that came or was done on each date, but they they don't have any of that available. Uh, you know, it's this digital archive that's not either. I mean, it's you're not a museum, okay? Let's go down the th- list of things that museum people have told me that they need to do. And, and the first one is this inventory issue. I mean, that right there is just like, No, that's the, and one, you know, it's the attitude of a collector, not a curator. Give me your stuff. Give me your stuff. Give me your stuff. Can I get a list? No. Have you aggregated and correlated all the various metadata of, is it black and white or color? Uh, What size is it? What resolution is it? How did the person that gave it to us come to possess it? Who is the person that gave it to us? On what date did we receive it? Where did we receive it? Uh, Do we know any publication items about this? Do we know the date, volume, uh, issue number? Do we know what page I'm looking at? Do we know, I mean, who was the inker? Who was the writer? Who was the, you know, you know, you know? Uh, That's the sort of thing a museum does. And let's go a little further. How are these items being stored? And I'd like to point out most of these questions I posed to them way over a week ago and they can't answer them. They need another, so I gave them a week to answer these questions that they should have been able to answer immediately according to every museum professional I've spoken to, okay? So I give them the week, and then they tell me they need another 7 to 10 days to get their Frequently Asked Questions page in order. Well, that sounds to me like they are doing some heavy tap dancing to get a page like that together. But all of these questions, according to museum professionals, should have been named just like, bam, here, I mean top of our mind. I mean it's just boom. Easy. Oh, here's how we uh preserve these items. Oh, here's how many items we have. Oh, here's how many items have been donated and how many have been loaned. They don't know any of this. And I will say that traditionally website changes do not suspend uh, queries from the media. This is the first time this has ever happened to me. The information will remain the same regardless of how it is displayed on the internet. I'm sorry. They should know all of this stuff, you know. They cannot tell you how they are preserving these items. They can't tell you if anyone at the museum has any expertise in preserving fine art, artwork, artifacts, uh, paper, you know, anything. I could go down the list of questions. They're on my my website, which you probably have seen. I've been assured that every single one of these questions will be directly and specifically answered by the frequently asked questions. We will see because there's more questions popping up like crazy, like crazy. We've requested their tax information. We'll take a look at that. Um, But people are wondering magazine. uh, Sorry, excuse me. Museums, generally speaking, have an outreach program they take the museum into the world. Now I know there's been a little of that done, but when I asked them how much they couldn't tell me. When I asked them how many times since the museums inception that the public was actually allowed to view any of these items, they couldn't tell me. Um you know, it's it's not a museum. I'm sorry. There are certain criteria that a museum must adhere to to be a museum. And just throwing up a website and selling merchandise and, oh, hey, here's some copies of some artwork. That ain't a museum. That's a blog. Museums have educational materials available for people. Museums offer those. Museums have symposiums that they hold inside the museum. Uh, You know, a legitimate museum would be giving art instructions in comic book uh, illustration in the Kirby style. I mean, go to that website. Look at it, comic book fans. When you get to that website, do you go, Wow, Jack Kirby! I mean, if you're sitting on all this artwork, if you're sitting on so much of it that you can't resist stealing it, wouldn't you use it? I mean, have you seen the Marvel illustration, the sort of... uh, not illustration the uh graphic uh billboard that they use at the at the start of all the Marvel movies with the fa- the page turns of the comics certainly nobody expects a museum that's basically in the 100% cotton business uh to generate enough funds to go off and have some crazy animation done but I'm telling you right now there are standard nevo slider flash windows you can throw into the html or just get a basic... St- I mean, I, I've i said it online. There are free templates right now that, that blow that site away. I mean, that it, it's not even funny blow it away. And Nevo sliders can be thrown into almost anything. And those are giant, page-wide, big, thirsty graphics that just actually slide out, slide out, slide out. So you could be showing 20. You could be showing however many you wanted. And what do they got? Their logo and two postage stamps in the upper left hand corner. They're not even making use of the artwork they have. They're not a museum. That's I can't you know Oh, and, and let's get on this topic. You know, if they if, if I could say they were a museum, I would. They're not. And there are people, Jesus in this Jack Kirby community. Look, I, I, I travel lots of worlds. I travel the, uh, you know, the world of the psychics. I travel the world of the porn stars. I travel the world of the uh, Texas musician. I travel the world of the professional athlete. I travel the world of, when I do these shows, I get indigenous to their cultures. I mean, you know. I study up. I go to message boards. I go to Facebook pages. I talk to the people there about what they care about uh, concerning these things. Heck, when I did the Ron Eckerman interview, uh, Ron, of course, the survivor of the uh, Leonard Skinner crash, I went to every Leonard Skinner page there was. I asked them what questions they want me to ask them. I, you know, that's what I do. And I gotta say, I've never met a bunch of uh well, let's just put it this way. I've never met more bitches than I have on those Kirby pages. Anywhere. I've never met more people that think they are the only keeper of the truth. Uh, Right in the face of a guy that worked with Jack Kirby, that knew him, that broke bread with him, everything else, they know better. And then there's a contingent. I'd like to mention a guy by the name of Lee Nail which I thought was a joke at first. Uh, Those of you who remember infomercials of the 70s. But a guy named Lee Nail, who's a little concerned, I haven't seen any criticizing of the museum as a whole. I mean, this Thiexton stealing his stuff thing, that's one thing. But to criticize them and how they operate, (laughs) uh, maybe put some big boy panties on and realize that when you steal... You invite scrutiny. Now, you seem to acknowledge the stealing, but you've cordoned off the fact that for as long as you've known these people, you've had your thumb up your ass, Lee, and haven't bothered to take a look at what they're doing. I have. Sorry. I've called museum professionals and asked them what the standards are because I've seen the joke in front of me and I've seen how they wield both the Kirby name and the idea that they're a museum to leverage people for crap that they want so after you've invited the scrutiny by stealing you don't really get to be offended when people point out and you don't even know how many items you have in your museum or <laughs> how they're stored and prepared <laughs> Like I said, I've met a lot of bitches in the Kirby fan page area, but I've met some cool people too, but that that attitude is just, hey, I just want to make sure that these uh you know bandwagon jumper hey, I don't jump bandwagons. I'm doing a story doofus. There's no bandwagon here. There's a guy who had his stuff ripped off and a and a bunch of buffoons calling themselves a museum while they're ripping him off. That's what there is. Did you ever bother to like take a look at how many times this uh, museum tweets, blog posts? I mean because social media is pretty damn easy and pretty damn cheap. And they've abdicated any responsible sense of you know communicating to the public anything but we're selling some shirts. Look at their pages, Lee. See if it's not a bunch of people holding up t-shirts. I don't see anybody drawing any comics. I don't see any symposiums. Ah, uh, maybe once or twice some of these guys have gotten up and spoke so they can sell one of their books. Have you seen the Kirby display that they've taken so many pictures of? Let me tell you right now, I've been working in marketing and advertising and communications for 30 years. That's a joke. I've seen Cub Scout troops do better jobs. Are you telling me that these publication geniuses that are trustees of this great museum can't have an actual display fashioned after eight years? And that's another thing. I just saw a post on the museum's Facebook page where they are championing, I mean, they're really proud of themselves, that they have scanned 4,000 images since 2006. Um, Somebody needs to tell these idiots that there's a thing called observable reality. Yeah, observable reality. All right. Lee Nail can look into that too. Lee's from uh, Oklahoma, so he's probably not good at math. 4,000 scans in eight years is 500 per year. That is a scorching hot rate of 1.3 scans per day. If I did 60 scans, I would double their monthly rate. If I did 10 scans per day, I would now have 40,000 scans done. Museum? Tell me another one. Tell me another one. Somebody gives me Jack Kirby's name and the word museum after it and all that artwork and eight years to work with. daddy oh, i I'll have you a brick and mortar. I'll have it corporate-sponsored. I will have a restaurant in it. I will have classroom uh, sessions. I'll blow, your, I'll blow your mind. I'll tell you what, and this is a standing offer to anybody who wants to hear it. You give me six months, six months, and I will get you a corporately sponsored and or free space in Los Angeles, California, to put that museum If, indeed, you can tell me what the hell's in it. It would be easy to do. It would be damn easy to do. But then again, I'm not a collector. But then again, I'm not one of the Jack Kirby cupcake makers like Lee Nail who have been sitting with their thumbs up their ass for eight years listening to these thieves spit in their ear about how many great things they're doing. You'll have to forgive me. I'm not as stupid as some people and I won't be snowed and I will get the answers that I'm looking for directly from the museum. And I want to say something right now that needs to be said. Every single thing I've Seen, done and interacted with on that museum screams out amateur self-important deluded fool except one thing one and i deal with a lot of media contacts okay tons of them tons of them and it's a little bit of a dance because the media contact know they have to give you information right and sometimes, and this is one of those cases, they, they probably know that you're not a fan, uh, but they have to be professional anyway. There's a guy, Patrick Berzinski. The trustees should get down on their hands and knees and genuflect in front of this man. Uh, this dude has his act together. Okay. He really, really. Really, really has his act together. Very impressed with their media contact. I'm not joking. Uh, He has already, already, and he may not even know this, deflected the museum from an avalanche of criticism by being professional. Uh, And not criticism from me, by the way, because I am actually have some people chomping at the bit to weigh in on this. Outside the Kirby world, Uh, (laughs) let me tell you. So, there's my little rant. I got a lot more to say about this. We may do another show, but I just had to say something before this frequently asked questions comes out because we got to really make sure and just really identify the fact, put a little flag in the ground. These questions weren't able to be answered immediately. I gave them a week. Now, a week is long enough to answer those questions. I'm sorry and i heard a little bit about well the trustees are four people it's basically a committee and da, 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 da. this is factual statistical information that should be free and open to anybody how many th- items do you have i mean sh- ballpark it how do you care for these items how often do you let the public see them are these things that need a committee meeting so when we see that faq let's keep in mind that they know about all this criticism and they're going to fashion that FAQ to address it and anything else they do to revamp their site. Keep that in mind. And that won't erase eight years. And it certainly won't erase stealing a man's property on two counts. So when you see these guys with paunchy midlines and, receding hairlines and kind of a I don't know mistrustful smile on their face between you and the artwork or the you know packaged action figures they're trying to sell keep it in mind folks just keep it in mind these are people that want to say hey we're a museum hey we're a museum give us your stuff hey we're a museum give us your stuff but they don't really want to do any of even the minimum things that are required to be even laughably called a museum. So that in mind, uh, we'll play a commercial and wrap things up. What made Hitler randy? What kind of woman made Der Fuhrer really want to stand at attention? Learn how Hitler liked to get it on when the History Channel presents Where Hitler Chose to Spawn as Hitler Rated X Week continues. like to thank sale branch for just for freaking being sale branch by god check him out on facebook sale branch s-a-i-l-l-e branch and uh we'd like to thank the jack kirby museum and research center for all the laughs as we visited kirbymuseum.org tell me that's not a blog or a fanboy site as you sift through all the pictures of people holding up t-shirts folks we'd really appreciate it if you'd share this on your various facebook pages trying to spread the word means trying to spread our little show here we'd appreciate it if you'd like the tom gully show not me but the show on facebook too if the mood strikes you and of course there's always the tom gully where you can find everything about the show there's the tom gully show store buy some crap okay you know we're not a museum Uh, And we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes for free. Follow us on Twitter at AtomicPaluca2 so I can increase my clout and cred ratings because if I get enough points, we're all going to go to the Aces. That'll do it for tonight. I'm out of here. We got to go talk to some people. I'll talk to you much later. Each night, Jay Johnson brings us in with the Truth Wagon. We'll take you out, as always, with Catch-22 Blues by the Hitman Blues Band, and we will see you next time.
2: Well, the bug can't lift a twig, for a dog is nothing big, but he don't want to. And the dog can't grab a cat, or a coon can do all that, but he don't want to. And I dream of you at night while you hold your baby tight, but he don't want you. You can see it in his eyes from the where he tells you lies